Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. We're going to grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 31. If we continue in worship now through the study of God's Word, Exodus chapter 31. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus, and we're getting there. Uh, at this point now, we're still up on the mountain with Moses at Mount Sinai. God is speaking to him. Uh, Moses is in a cloud with him and God alone. Elders are just outside, and then uh, people down at the base of the mountain doing what they do. We'll learn more about that in a couple weeks, what they're doing while Moses is up here. Uh, but that should be exciting for us. These next two weeks or the last two weeks, we'll study Moses being on top of the mountain uh, at this point. So we're getting close to him being up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And that should sound familiar to you. More on that later. Uh, but this is the journey for us. And so this morning, um, what I want to do is I want to include you a bit here at the beginning. And then I want to read through verses 1 through 11. Then I want to back us up and give us a theology from Scripture and then I want us to see where the Israelites have a misplaced theology and maybe where we do as well and then get us into some application. What do we do with what it is that we've learned here this morning? So what I wanna know first of all is what was your first job? Shout it out. What was your, this is the extrovert's dream. You get to participate. What was your first job? Tell us your first job. Dog watcher? Washer. You washed the dogs. Okay, good. What else? Delivery person. Car wash? Fast food, Walmart, lifeguard, watermelon. Watermelon thrower? You threw watermelons. Like a comedy show? I'm from Florida, I don't know if this, is this like a Georgia thing? Yes? I bet you're good at it, Will, though. I bet you're the best. Anybody else? Not to thoroughly embarrass you. Anybody else? Chick-fil-A. Kmart. I remember Kmart. That's where Rain Man got his underwear. Karaoke? Yes. Nice, Michael. Anybody else? All right, what was your favorite job? What was your Retirement. One of these days, one of these days, Sean. Anybody else's favorite job? Pardon me? Unemployment. Unemployment. Jim, get out of here. Anybody else? Residential drywall. That was your favorite job? What a life you've lived, sir. Awesome. Anybody else? Sports reporter. McGowan. Teacher. Anybody else? Mom. Mom. Yep. Wish you got paid more. <laughs> Still a good job. Anybody else? Fireman. Fireman. Awesome. All right, so here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to read these first 11 verses, and then I want to look at a biblical theology of work. I don't know if you know this, but there's a theology of work based on Scripture. But I think for many of us, what's happened is we've begun to ascribe to a false theology of work. And it has led us to places um, that are sinful, 
places that are keeping us from the true blessing and goodness and grace of God. So let's do this together. Uh, Exodus chapter 31, verses one through 11. Let's read these and then let's talk. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. You can underline that phrase. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. What has he commanded them to make? The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table, and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, Aaron, the priests and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do." So God's on the mountain speaking to Moses and God has given Moses the blueprint. He showed him everything of the tabernacle, which is just a tent, a dwelling place for God among his people. They've been set free from slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised land and God is making it known that he is dwelling and wants to dwell among his people. But God knows Moses enough to know that Moses is not the one to build the tabernacle. He might be the one to lead the people, but he's not one to build the tabernacle. Do you have friends like that? You would never ask them to build anything. They're good at other things, but that you would never ask them to. You have a family member who you would never ask uh, to bake the cake for your birthday to your friends like that. God knows I've set Moses apart for a particular work, but the work of Moses is not this work. I have other people that I've set aside for this work. So we'll get to that here in a second. The Bible gives us a theology of work. And as Christians, we need to know this theology because all of our lives is centered around this. It's the way that we live our lives based on work and occupation. And so let's go back to Genesis chapter two. The Bible, uh, creation is as it should be. The Bible uses the word, it is good. Good to a Hebrew means it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete, it's lacking nothing. And in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, we read, the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Some of your translations say to cultivate it and to keep it. This idea of work, that's the word. Hebrew, that word is work. Now, pay attention to chronology here. There has been no sin. The world is as it should be. And in God's great design for the world, he has given mankind, humanity, work to do. So I say all that to say this. Work is not a result of sin. It's an invitation into the partnership with God. Work is not because there's sin. Work is not punishment. Work is not discipline. Work is an invitation to join God in his work on this earth to the redemption of all things. This is the invitation. Before there was sin, there was work. You need to hear that. So what that means for us is that work in and of itself is holy. It's a sacred thing that we do. When you and I work, that is holy. It's sacred. It's set apart. It's how we fulfilled our role of humanity on the earth. It's crucial for us as Christians to understand that work is not because we've sinned. Work is because God is good. He's invited us into it. Now, from this point forward, Adam and Eve fall into sin. 
They take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told them not to, and their relationship with God is fractured. And because it's, their relationship with God is fractured, everything gets fractured. Everything gets distorted. Everything gets messed up. God meets Adam and Eve. He pursues them in their sin, and there are consequences to their sin. And for Adam in particular, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But notice, this does not change the goodness of work. It just changes the process by which we get what we want from the work. It doesn't change the goodness of work. At this point, God has not deemed work evil, but he has made work harder. It is, the process is harder. There's thorns and thistles that arise. To cultivate the very garden God created now is going to be a bit more arduous on, on Adam. Sin yields thorns and thistles. And for many of us, it's not Genesis 2.15 that shapes our theology of work. It's Genesis 3.17 through 19 that shape our theology of work. We have moved from beginning that work is good and holy and right and sacred, and we've moved to, no, 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 it's awful, I hate it, it's a punishment, I must have done something wrong, why is my job so hard when other people's jobs aren't that hard? The theology of work to a Christian is rooted in Genesis 2.15. It is good, it is right, it is holy. And because of sin, it is hard. It's exhausting. And sweat is on our brow. This is the biblical theology of work. It's good, and it's right, and it's holy, and because of sin, it's awfully difficult and hard. But as a people, we are programmed to drift away from the hard and into the comfortable. So that's the danger for us. Now, the Israelites had their own theology of work, and it was shaped like yours and like mine from previous employers. Our theology of work, if you love your job, it is not a stretch for you to think that it's a good thing, a good gift from God. If you hate your job, you're gonna have a really hard time seeing it as a gift. Well, the Israelites had a boss way worse than yours. Their theology of work was shaped by their time in Egypt. Exodus chapter one, we're gonna read here to understand where they were. They were slaves in Egypt. Verse 13, so they, the Egyptians, made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. Anybody feel like your work is bitter? Has it made you bitter? With all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So there are consequences to sin in regards to work. It creates thorns and thistles. But then in sin, uh, there are leaders who are sinful who enhance the thorns and the thistles. It's just a fact of life. Yes, there are natural consequences to sin, the thorns and the thistles. Then there are evil taskmasters who make your work even thornier and even thistlier. It happens for you and for me. The Israelites had built a theology of work. And in their theology of work, there is no joy. There is no delight. There is no purpose. Many of you, maybe today, you feel that way about your work. There is no joy in it. There's no delight. There's no purpose. 
You feel like you're working to help someone else buy a jet. You feel like you're working to uh, appease somebody else. You have lost purpose, you've lost joy, and you've lost delight. My goal today is to encourage us to come back to Genesis 2, 15. Well, that was bad enough for the Israelites, but it gets worse when Moses shows up. Moses shows up to deliver the people from Israel, and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh hears this and then makes it worse on the Israelites. Exodus 5, verse 6. The same day, this day that uh, Moses spoke to Pharaoh, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And therefore they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Heavier work. Do you feel that way this morning? You feel like your work's just gotten heavier. You used to enjoy it. You used to find delight and purpose and joy in it. And now it's just heavy. But let's think about the Israelites. Now what was joyless has now become even more joyless. There's no joy, no delight, no purpose in their work. So it's with this theology of work that God speaks in Exodus 31. We gotta remember that. This, what God is going to invite the people of Israel into is completely foreign to them based on the past 430 years of their lives. This idea that God might actually call us into work and not just call us into work, but has equipped us for that work is completely foreign. The idea that you might actually find joy and delight in your work, the idea that work is holy, it's set apart, is completely foreign to the Israelites. I would imagine for some of us, it's foreign to us as well. So in Exodus 31, uh, when God speaks, he's speaking to these men and women with a broken theology of work. So let's go back into 31 with this idea. God has a theology of work. It's good, it's right, it's, it's partnering with him for the flourishing of the world, but it's been broken by sin, and then it's been increasingly broken by sinful leaders. Look at Exodus 31 again, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel. This word called means that God has commissioned. He has drawn this man into himself for a purpose and a plan. I have appointed, I've called, and he calls in a man by the name of Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. This is a whole other sermon of the tribe of Judah. We don't have time. Verse three, but then look at this. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. This is the first time in scripture we read this phrase about a man, to be filled with the spirit. And we've met Abraham, we've met Noah, We've met Jacob and Isaac. We've met Moses and Aaron. We've met priests and elders. And the first person that scripture tells us is full of the spirit of God, full of the Holy Spirit, is a man named Bezalel who's just a common craftsman or artisan. It's not a priest. It's not an elder. It's not one of the forefathers of the Jewish faith. It's a man named Bezalel who from after Exodus you won't hear of again but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's probably not who you expected to be called filled with the Holy Spirit. A carpenter, like a metalsmith, this is not who you thought to be called uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet here we are. Well, we don't expect it because we've created a divide between the sacred and the secular when it comes to work. Now, last week we talked about distinguishing between the holy and the common, and that is still true. 
We should distinguish. But there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. A number of years ago, uh, particularly in Roman Catholicism, the belief was that if you were called by God into ministry, that gave you a, uh, um, a holy, a sacred kind of work. You became a monk and you literally divided yourself. You became a nun and you divided yourself. You became a priest and you separated yourself. And so what began to be birthed into the church was the idea that there's a hierarchy of work. There's holy work that the monks and the nuns and the priests get to do. Then there's the work that everybody else gets to do, which they don't like to do, but everybody, but the priests, everybody else likes their job. And it's not so different for you and me. You feel the same way. You feel like I'm the one who's been called by God and you just have to drive a truck. You feel like I must have some special connection with God, and I don't. You must feel like sometimes that there is a divide between the sacred and the secular. Well, thank God for the Reformation, because in the Reformation, we learned the Bible, that there is no division, there is no separation between the sacred and the secular when it comes to work. And this is an example of it here in Exodus 31. The first man called full of the Spirit is not a pastor. He's not an elder or a deacon, He's just a man who likes good art and knows how to make it. He's just a craftsman. He just has a particular set of skills. That's just who he is, this man, Bezalel. And God says, this man, I have filled him with the spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-filled man. And from this spirit filling comes other kinds of fillings, comes other things that he has given to him. Exodus 31.3 says he's been given ability. This is skill. Skill comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the endowment of the Spirit. Psalm 139, you've been knit together in your mother's womb. In your knitting together in your mother's womb, God placed in you a particular set of skills, of abilities. Through the Holy Spirit, this man Bezalel was given this gift, this ability, this skill. And then from there, we learned that he was given intelligence. Intelligence just means understanding. It's able to put things together. He's got the skill, and then he gives them understanding. You know what understanding does for you, intelligence does for you? It allows you to get better at your skill. He gave him a skill. He gave him intelligence. He filled him through the Holy Spirit with skill, intelligence, and knowledge, the know-how. Some translations say discernment, knowing which tool to use for which thing knowing that you shouldn't use a sledgehammer for open heart surgery. That's discernment. That's good. That's a good thing that the Spirit gives us. And then craftsmanship. God gave him craftsmanship. Some of your translations say occupation. God gave him this. Trade school didn't give it to him. His dad didn't take him in the shop and teach him. God gave him this. God did all of this. We've got to uh, tear down the walls between the sacred and the secular. This man, Bezalel, has been given holy work to do. And it's highly spiritual, but it's highly practical. He's got the Holy Spirit and practical gifts. And God gave it to him. Which means that the work God's calling Bezalel to do is holy work. And it's not just because he's building a tabernacle. This work was holy long before God gave the blueprints of the tabernacle. It's holy because God gave it to him. It's holy because it's through the spirit of God. Okay, well then why? Like, why would God give him these gifts? Well, look at verse four. He gave him these gifts to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. Pay attention, there's no mention of the tabernacle. 
It doesn't say God gave him these gifts specifically to build the tabernacle. No. He gave him these gifts because he wanted him to be artistic. Because he wanted him to be able to work with gold, silver, and bronze. He wanted him to be able to work with stones and carving wood. The tabernacle comes later. This work, this work of creative artistry, this work of craftsmanship was given to him and later would be used for the tabernacle, but it was given to him to be good at it. God has given you skills and intelligence and wisdom, understanding, discernment, and he's given you craftsmanship simply so you would be good at it. That's why, that's why. He gave you the ability to teach because he wants you to teach and to be good at it. He gave you the ability to coach because he actually wants you to coach. Not just to be a Christian who stands on the sideline, but to actually coach, know what you're doing. He's given you the ability to organize spreadsheets. And I know it doesn't feel like holy work, but it's holy work because he gave it to you. The way that your mind works and, and data entry, that you can do that endlessly. No hope of the future. Like that's a gift for you to be able to do that. Like that's, I mean, that's a gift. And he gave these gifts to you and to me just so we would use them, just to be good at it. He's given us gifts and intelligence and discernment and craftsmanship simply to be good at it. And he gave Bezalel these gifts before there was ever a tabernacle to build. So let's use our sanctified imagination. Let's think about Bezalel in Egypt. For Bezalel in Egypt from nine to five, he's trying to find straw to mix in with the mixture to make bricks for Pharaoh to build his storehouses. Doesn't necessarily fit within his skill set, does it? So you have to imagine he's just getting through the nine to five and then he gets home and he's got a little makeshift tent shop in the back where he goes and he works with all the metals and wood and stone. And he loves it. Like he feels at home there. He feels like... Uh, this is where God is for him. This is, this is where it feels like wholeness and completion. And so sure, he does the nine to five, but he can't wait to get back home again to shop. You feel that way? Like there's a thing that even in Egypt, he learned to do. And then what happened for him in Egypt was, well, no, none of the Israelites knew how to do it, so he befriended an Egyptian. And maybe there was an Egyptian who knew how to do these things and Bezalel was nice enough and they had common interests, so he kind of taught him how to do even more work. With no tabernacle in mind, God is giving Bezalel a heart and a passion and the giftedness for this. Because it's holy. Because it's the right theology of work. It's how we partner with God to bring beauty into the world. And then verse nine, God continues, behold, I've appointed Oholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. Dan is a very insignificant tribe. It's not, not a big deal. But this is what God does. He pulls people from there. Now he gives them a partner But then look at this in verse six. And I have given to all able men ability. What this tells us is what God has done is he's given able men their initial ability. But then what we learn here is God has increased their ability through the spirit. It's not that they woke up one day and were all of a sudden good at metalwork. It's not like the matrix. They just got downloaded into their brain. They just woke up. Well, I'm good at this now. No, what happened was while God was knitting them together in their mother's womb, God gave them gifts. God gave them abilities and understanding and intelligence and discernment. And God gave them craftsmanship. So probably if you look back over their lives, they were always playing with wood and metal work. They were always doing it. If you look back over their lives, this is what they did. 
And then the Spirit shows up. They, they give their lives to, to, uh, to God and the gospel, and the Spirit shows up, and the Spirit increases what it is that they are doing. This is true for you and for me as well. There are gifts God has given us in our mother's womb. And then when you give your life to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, the role of the Spirit is not to do away with those gifts, but to amplify them. And so before you knew Jesus, you were a good engineer. You didn't need the Spirit for that. You just needed your brain. But you know where that came from? God. And so then when it was time to light that flame and the fire of the Spirit burned within you, now there's like a divine understanding of engineering. Now there's some purpose behind it. There's some glory behind it. This is what's happening here. He gave able men ability. He increased their purpose. But why? Well, then he tells us at the end of verse six that they may make all that I have commanded you, not to spend on your own passions or on your own desires, not to get wealthy, not to get famous, that they might build what God has called them to build, everything. Now, listen to this. This is crazy. To build the holy of holies, you'd have to be inside the holy of holies, yes? But they're not priests. Yet God has called these common men to build the very sacred holy thing that God is designing and building. They built the brazen altars. Every time they offered a sacrifice, they saw they were the ones who built that. These are, these are the men, the common men who have been given gifts and abilities. So I say that to say this, work is holy. All work that we do is holy work when it's given to us by the Spirit of God. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, which means everything you do is holy. Every work, every creative thing that you do, the way that you write songs, the way that you paint, the way that, uh, that you coach your kids' flag football team, all of that, it's holy work. It's all holy. This is what makes your work holy, is that the Spirit of God is within you, and you have been set apart. You are holy. So then the question is, what does holy work actually look like? Well, we have an example here in Exodus chapter one. Remember, um, Pharaoh has found out that the Israelites are growing in, in number and he's nervous about it. So he issues a decree. This is Exodus chapter one, verse 15. The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The Hebrew midwives understood that their work was holy. Bringing life into the world sounds like a very God-like thing, doesn't it? They understood their role is a holy role. So then, to have evil try to interact with the holy, they distinguish between the holy and the common and say, no, 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 what we do is holy work. It is not holy work to end the life of a baby in the womb. That's not holy work. Holy work is to bring life. This is holy work. And so there's a moment. If you believe that your work is holy, you're going to be asked to compromise. And if you just view your job as a nine to five or just a way to get through and to pay your bills and send your kids to college, you won't have the discernment to know, no, 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 no. That's not holy work. I do holy work. And so you compromise. Because a poor theology of work will leave you to compromise at your work. But these Hebrew midwives understood, no, what we do is holy. It's partnering with God. It's working and cultivating. It's filling. This is what we are supposed to be doing. So it continues in verse 18. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. 
And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So look at this blessing. So God dealt well with the midwives. Why? Because their work was holy and they knew it. And the people multiplied and grew very, very strong. If we're going to live under the theology that our work is holy, it will cause us to make some decisions sometimes. And that might mean you can't work for that boss. And that might mean you can't work for that company. And I can't discern that for you. You have to discern that for yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. But all work that we do is holy. When, we're, we are, when we are convinced of that theology, it changes things for us. Well, that's great for the midwives, right? Like they made the right decision and they seem like good people and so they got the blessing of God. But what about the rest of us who we understand that we've really messed some stuff up and we're broken and we're sinful and so the way that we view our work now is, well, it's just what I have to do now because I screwed everything else up before. Maybe you feel like your job is the consequence for sinful behavior in the past. Maybe you feel like, well, I mean, I was gonna pursue this uh, track, this education, but this happened in college and I dropped out, so now I'm just kind of stuck doing this low-level job. Like, I feel like I'm, um, I've been sentenced to thorns and thistles the rest of my life. And I can talk about joy and delight all day long, but for you, what you feel like is, no, 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 that's like, yeah, for the good people, they can have that, but for me, I'll just do this until I go to heaven and then there maybe it'll be different there. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. Are there consequences to sin? Yes. But there's also the grace and restoration of Jesus Christ. So maybe you feel like I'm just in this because I'm being punished. I would argue, no, you're not. And I think Moses would argue the same thing. Moses grew up in Egypt as a Hebrew, grew up in the house of Pharaoh, had royalty, had power ends up murdering someone. He murders an Egyptian. And then he runs to the desert, to the wilderness. And while he's there, he finds his thorns and thistles. While he's there, he finds it. Exodus chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. I don't know what kinds of thorns and thistles you think you have, but would you work for your father-in-law? That sounds thorny, doesn't it? We're gonna talk thorns and thistles. Let's talk about that. And then we read later, he's on the backside of the mountain. You know you put on the backside of the mountain? Terrible shepherds. That's who you put on the backside of the mountain with terrible sheep. He's the guy that you never let out in front to meet the customers. He's back in the shop, so no one will ever see him. This is what's happening. And you have to imagine Moses is thinking, this is my life though, right? Like, I, mama, I killed a man. This is what I've done. And so now this is, this is what I'm relegated to. I've got no shot at joy and delight. I'll just do this forever. I'll make the most of it and I'll do it until I die. What's interesting is that God took a man who was raised in the Egyptian royalty, who understood how Pharaoh works, and then he gave him 40 years in the wilderness to become a shepherd. And to this day, the Jews call Moses the shepherd of the Israelites. So maybe, maybe you've sinned and it's cost you something. But you need to know that God is bigger than that. And in your season on the backside of a mountain, God's actually giving you what you need for the next season in which you're delivering people from their slavery. So no, you aren't disqualified. No, you aren't relegated to thorns and thistles. Yes, you can find joy and delight in your occupation again. Yes, you can. And it begins with this, understanding that your work is holy. And I'm not saying the result of the work is holy. Don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not saying your work is holy because at your work you get to tell people about Jesus. Yeah, that's great. You do get to. That's a great thing. What I'm telling you is the actual work is holy. Not the result of it, not the scenario and circumstances of it. The work in and of itself is holy. It's holy. Teaching is holy. Why? Because God teaches. That's why. Because it's holy. When we first meet the Holy Spirit, he's in Genesis chapter one, before creation, he's hovering over the chaotic waters of the deep. The main role of the Holy Spirit in creation is to take what's in chaos and put it in order. You know what teachers do? They do just that. They take classrooms that are in chaos and they put them in order. They take a kid who can barely understand what letters are and they teach them how to make words, which make sentences, which make paragraphs, which makes books, and that kid can read. That's chaos to order. That's the work of God. That's holy. That's holy. Landscapers, that's holy Garden of Eden work. You're literally doing it. You're working the ground. You're cultivating it. You take yards of thorns and thistles and weeds and overgrown bushes, and you know how to trim it back and cut it back and plant the right kind of flowers and bushes here, and you create beauty out of it. Hanging drywall putting in air conditioners. You're doing holy work. I'm not saying it's holy because you get to talk about Jesus. It's holy because you're doing it. That's holy. It matters what you're doing. Sales, that matters if you're doing it in holiness. Now, as holy work, you cannot manipulate and deceive people and trick them. But the holy work, being a mother, that is holy, holy work. And I know it doesn't feel like it some days when you're changing messy diapers and cleaning up messes all day long. But is that not what God does for us? Hasn't he cleaned up our mess? Haven't we continued to wallow in it and yet he cleans us up? Aren't you doing the work of God? Your work is holy. Yes, talk about Jesus. Yes, schedule it well. Yes, but what I'm telling you is that the very work you're doing is holy because it's good and it's right. It's holy, holy work. So what I'm saying to you, if like you're on the backside of the mountain is there's holy work yet for you to do if you would see it in that way. Because Ephesians chapter two, after saying this by grace, through faith that we are saved, Paul continues and says, we are his workmanship. We are his work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And finding this calling is not hard. You just walk. Like we've made such a mess of it, especially to high school seniors. You just walk. You just take one step in front of the other and this God who loves you has created your world and your life will lead you right into it because he's created good works for you to do. He created good works and said, hey, I need a Oholiab. I need a Bezalel. Let me create him. And so because he knew he was building a tabernacle, he needed men like this. So then he created this man in his mother's womb, gave him the skills and, and instincts and intelligence to be able to do it, helped him develop it over time. And then when the time was right, he sent him forward to build the tabernacle. What I'm saying is there's holy work to be done now because there's holy work done to be done tomorrow. And we never reach the point where we don't have to do it anymore. Because here's the argument. Some of us say, well, I put my time in doing that holy work. Now it's someone else's time. That is the most sinful thought you might be able to ever have. If God's called you and equipped you to holy work, you better be doing that holy work till the day you breathe your last breath. 
There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. Sure, you can change professions, but that thing he's put in you, oh, you better keep doing it. One of the most disconcerting things that I hear is people who would say, yeah, but I mean, I spend my Monday through Friday doing that. I don't wanna do that on Sunday. Come on. The gift God has given you that is holy work and you don't wanna use it in his house? It's holy work set apart for his glory and for the good of his people. It's holy, it's good, it's right. And maybe it feels meaningless, but I think it's all bringing chaos back into order. Paul in 2 Corinthians, speaking of generosity, says this in chapter nine. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You feel like you're reaping sparingly this morning? You feel like you're running low on joy and delight and purpose? I would argue it's not because God isn't showering you with those things. It's because you haven't sowed the seeds. And so this holy work that God has called you into, you've stopped doing because you're tired. Yes, you're tired. I'm tired. Yeah, it's hard work because there are thorns and thistles. It doesn't make the work bad. It doesn't make the work wrong just because it's hard. In fact, as followers of Jesus, our work ethic, the way that we work should supersede everyone on the face of the planet because we work for a holy God who has given us holy work. There's deeper purpose behind what we do. So when you're filling out those spreadsheets, your understanding is this is not just for the business. This is because this is what God does. God takes chaos of numbers and handwriting and he creates spreadsheets to bring order to it. You're doing the work of God. When you repair that car, you're doing the work of God. You're restoring, you're redeeming what has been broken. You're doing the work of God. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because you're getting paid for it. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Students, your work right now is school. That's your work. And God has equipped you for that work. Yes, share Jesus with your friends. Yes, sit at table with kids who don't know Jesus, all those things. But more than that, the work of algebra is good work. I know you don't believe it. You'll never use it a day in your life. I'm just saying it's good work. It's good. Because even Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. It's good work. Mom, dad, it's good work what you're doing. Keep pressing on, keep leaning in. Because this tells us right here that the God of all grace will give us what we need that we might abound in every good work. You might actually flourish in it. But as long as we have a poor theology of work, we're never gonna find the abounding grace of God in him. And for some of us, what holds us back is, well, I just don't feel equipped to do it. I don't feel good enough to do it. Who's giving you the gifts? God is. He can handle it great missionary Elizabeth Elliot says, if we wait until we are sure we shall do a thing purely and perfectly, we shall never accomplish the will of God on earth. God will handle the filling, you handle the working. There's a good and holy work God's called you to.
and you won't find the abounding, bountiful grace of God sowing sparingly. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's just process and work through some of this together in all honesty and transparency this morning. It's the only shot we have is to be honest about it. I wonder how many of us this morning by a show of hands would say, yeah, I don't, I haven't viewed my work as holy. It's just a thing that I feel like I have to do. And I'm angry and I'm tired, I'm frustrated and I don't like it. Would you raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me today. I just, it's hard. It's not holy. Yeah, praise the Lord for your honesty. What you're doing is holy. I wonder how many of us this morning would say, no, I, I do feel like it's holy, but what's happened is I've started to sow sparingly and I'm feeling it. I'm feeling low on the joy and delight scale. Would you raise your hand and say, yeah, I feel like I've just been sowing sparingly. I, I know it's holy. I just feel like I haven't given it what I need to be giving it. Yeah, praise the Lord. So here's what we have to do as followers of Jesus. We're gonna have to give all of ourselves to it. Like there's no backup plan. There's no other scenario. This is the work God's called us to in this moment. And if he's worthy of it all, then he's worthy of our effort even through the thorns and the thistles. And there's probably some of us here today who we have no purpose in our work or the purpose that we have wanes from time to time. It's paying my bills. It's getting me on vacation. It's making me feel like I'm making a difference in the world. All those things are fine, but they will wane and you will lose sight of it. And maybe it's because you haven't yet been made holy by the finished work of Jesus who will give you every good gift for the work that he's called you to. So maybe what you need to do is actually give your heart to Jesus. You need to surrender all that you are. Name him Lord of your life. Believe that he's the one, he's the Messiah. He's the one who made a way for you to get back to God. You believe that he is who he says he is and that you would live as if he's Lord of your life, which means if he's called you to build a tabernacle, you're able to build a tabernacle because you can look back and see where he's given you the gifts to do it. Father, thank you for your great steadfast love for us. I thank you that in your great plan for the world, somehow and for some strange reason, even in perfection, you invited us into working and keeping it. And would you forgive us, God, for the times that we've treated work as punishment and not as partnership with you? And forgive us for the times that we've slacked off and we haven't worked hard and we haven't given all that we have to the thing you've called us to do. And for those of us this morning who need to be renewed and to right thinking and right theology about work, God, I pray that you would do it in a real and a deep and a powerful way for us today. That even tomorrow when we, or Tuesday, whenever we go back to work, God, that we would on the drive-in have a holy view of what you've called us to do, that we might see your hand in it and see how we're partnering with you and we'd see how you've gifted us for this very thing. That you give us the courage to go all in on it that we might find bountiful blessing there. In Jesus' name, amen.